Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In just a little bit, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 38. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 38. I know that uh, probably all of you know what Craigslist is. Uh, For those who may not know what Craigslist is, it is an online uh, classified ads is what it is. You know what classified ads are in the back of the newspaper. People try to sell stuff. Uh, There's a, a help wanted section of the classified ads. There's a uh, uh, people looking for jobs in the classified ads. Well, Craigslist is an online version of uh, classified ads for a newspaper. And there are all kinds of things. There's some really good things on Craigslist. You can do some great things. There's some really not so good things on Craigslist. Uh, but some of you may have even used Craigslist. I remember uh, Amanda used to have a little white 1993 convertible Mustang. And we sold that Mustang on Craigslist. Very easy to sell it. Uh, in fact, uh, the Mustang she has now, we bought it, used from a guy who had it advertised from Peachtree City on Craigslist. So we're familiar with it, and I'm sure that you are as well. The following post reportedly was on Craigslist on May the 27th, 2009. Quote, to the guy who tried to mug me in downtown Savannah night before last. I was the guy wearing the black Burberry jacket that you demanded that I hand over shortly after you pulled a knife on me and my girlfriend threatening our lives. You asked for my girlfriend's purse and her earrings. I can only hope that you somehow come across this rather important message. First, I'd like to apologize for your embarrassment. I didn't expect you to actually soil your pants when I drew my pistol after you took my jacket. The evening was not that cold, and I was wearing the jacket for a reason. My girlfriend had just bought me that Kimber Model 1911 Colt 45 pistol for my birthday, and we had picked up a shoulder holster for it that very evening. Obviously, you agree that it is a very intimidating weapon when pointed at your head, isn't it? I know it probably wasn't fun walking back to wherever you'd come from. I'm sure... It was even worse walking barefooted since I made you leave your shoes, your cell phone, and your wallet with me. That prevented you from calling or running to your buddies to come help you mug us again. After I used your cell phone to call your mother, or mama, as you had her listed in your address book, I explained the entire episode to her of what you had done. Then I went and I filled up my gas tank as well as the gas tanks of four other people in the gas station using your credit card. (laughs) 
The guy with the big motor home took 150 gallons and was extremely grateful. I gave your shoes to a homeless guy outside Vinnie Van Agogo's, along with all the cash in your wallet. That made his day. I then threw your wallet into a big pink gang leader's limousine that was parked at the curb. I did this after I broke the windshield and the side window and keyed the entire driver's side of the car. On your cell phone, I managed to get in two threatening phone calls to the district attorney's office and one to the FBI while mentioning the president as one of my possible targets. The FBI guy seemed really intense, and we had a nice long chat, I guess, while he traced your number. I feel this type of retribution is far more appropriate punishment for your threatened crime. I wish you well as you try to sort through some of these rather immediate pressing issues. And I can only hope that you have the opportunity to reflect upon and perhaps reconsider the career path you've chosen to pursue in life. Remember, next time you might not be so lucky. Have a good day. Thoughtfully yours, Alex. Retaliation is sweet, isn't it? I mean, he who laughs last does indeed laugh loudest. Isn't it true? I mean, isn't it true? Just admit it. Isn't it true that retaliation, especially if you are the one retaliating, and if you're the last one retaliating, that especially, it's sweet. Moses would agree with that. God, when he, God inspired Moses to write the Old Testament law, one of the things he inspired him to write was a law that said something like this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Moses thought it was sweet. But Jesus didn't. He didn't think it was so sweet. And what Jesus says about that particular law and some other laws in the Sermon on the Mount reveal a great deal about how Jesus viewed the law and how we need to view life. Look with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, a passage that most of us today don't like, if we're really honest. Jesus said in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, he doesn't say who it was who said it, but that was Moses inspired by God to write the law. That was in the law. So Moses is the one who said this. You've heard it said by Moses, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I love Matthew's gospel. I love it because uh, Matthew has an intentional, methodical purpose. Matthew is a Jewish writer. He's writing to Jewish people, trying to convince them that Jesus Christ is the sought-for Messiah, the Christ, the King of the Jews. And in order to convince his audience, Matthew does a number of things to connect Jesus to who the Messiah should be. First of all, there are multiple times when when Matthew will quote Old Testament prophecies and then he will specifically show how Jesus fulfilled each one of those prophecies. In Matthew chapter 1, he uh, gives a family tree of Jesus that, that goes from Jesus to David to Abraham, two essential characters in the Old Testament who had to be part of the Messiah's family tree. He also connected him with Judah, the tribe of Judah, and the three people that we know who had to be part of the Messiah's family tree were Abraham, Judah, and David. In chapter 2, Matthew has the wise men, the magi, coming to Jerusalem, searching for a baby who they had been told by God would be born. And they were following a star, and they came to Herod, the king, the regional king of Judea. And the reason they came to him was, is because this person, this baby they were looking for, was entitled the king of the Jews. And who better to ask about the king of the Jews than the king of the Jews at that time? Didn't work out so well, but they came looking for the king of the Jews. Matthew even tried to provoke jealousy in the Jewish people. Uh, You will note if you look at his family tree, there are five women mentioned in that family tree, which was unheard of in first century culture, especially among Jewish family trees. You never put a woman's name in a family tree. Matthew puts five women in the family tree. Two of those five are Gentile. Tamar and Rahab are prostitutes. Bathsheba was the one who had an adulterous relationship with uh, David. Ruth was a Moabitess. And then you had Mary, the mother of Jesus, who at the time Matthew describes her early in his chapter, she is an unwed, pregnant teenager. Five women who in a time when you didn't put any women in there, I don't care if they are Ruth Bell Graham quality women, and yet Matthew not only puts women in there, they are women of questionable reputation, whether that reputation was fair or not. And of course, for most of them, it was not. Matthew does that to provoke jealousy in his Jewish readers. The first people who come looking for Jesus in Matthew are not Jewish people, they're Magi. Who are the Magi? Non-Jewish. Who are non-Jewish? Gentiles. And it's as if in chapter 2, Matthew says, look, folks, I'm trying to get you Jewish people to, to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. 
Even Gentiles are doing that. If Gentiles can see that so clearly, what are you waiting for? So he's provoking them to jealousy. Some of the last words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, is, you know, the Great Commission. And he says, he says, go into all the world, all the Greek ethnos, which meant all the nations. That included not just Jewish nations, but Gentile nations. And make disciples of all the nations. So Matthew has an intentional purpose. He he takes his gospel and he weaves his gospel around five different long discourses of Jesus. There is a narrative before each discourse that connects with each of the discourses. And then Jesus gives this long preaching, teaching, sermon, discourse, five of them. And at the end of each of those five, Matthew ends up with saying, and when Jesus had finished these things, he's very methodical, intentional very organized, uh, which we would expect of an accountant, as we believe, most people believe that Matthew was. Matthew has Jesus as the new Moses. Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God gave him the law. And Moses came down and he gave that law to the people, at least the second time. The first time he threw it at them. (laughs) Second time he brought it to them. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, is on a mountain, just like Moses was. Not the same mountain, but on a mountain. And as Moses was on the mountain, talking with God about the law, Jesus, who is God, is on this mountain, talking to his followers about what? The law. And so the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews 5, 6, and 7 are the equivalent of Exodus chapter 20 in the Old Testament, which is the giving of of the law. Moses gave the law and Jesus gives his perspective on the law in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And it's interesting what Jesus does with the law. I want you to know three things that Jesus does with the law that ought to impact how we look at the law, but not only the law, about all of life. First of all, Jesus affirmed The Old Testament law. He affirmed it very clearly. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. These are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I mean, he's adamant about it. Therefore, he goes on, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It is very clear from those three verses that Jesus affirmed, that is, he was in favor of, The Old Testament law. But you can't stop there. Because while Jesus affirmed the Old Testament law, secondly, he expanded the Old Testament law. He expanded the Old Testament law. Now, one thing that we need to understand about the Sermon on the Mount, in the first two chapters, especially of the Sermon on the Mount, among other things, there are six passages within that sermon that scholars call uh, 
antitheses. They are antithetical, which means Jesus lays one thing in opposition to another thing. They are antithetical is the word for it. He he presents them in opposition with each other. And there are six of them, six antitheses, and all of them have to do with the law. Now, uh, there are two of them I want to mention here. One of them has to do with what the law says about murder, and the other one has to do with what the law says about adultery. And what you're going to see in both of these instances is that this Jesus who affirmed the law also didn't just leave it alone, but he expanded that same law. Now, let's look, first of all, at murder. Verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Now, let me just stop right there again and say, who they heard what he's about to say from was Moses. God's law. You, I tell you, he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago in the law, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is a very derogatory term in a first century Jewish culture, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, what I want you to see is how Jesus took this law, which was very clearly in the law, it's one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And he takes that and says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, and if you murder, you'll be subject to judgment. But I say to you, even if you are angry with a brother, You've committed murder in your heart. Now, folks, I don't like that. Because I've been angry with people before. Now, one of the other gospel writers, Mark, he, he says, he, he quotes Jesus saying, if any of you are angry without a cause, Mark adds that. Matthew doesn't add that. Matthew's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount just says, if you're angry with a brother then you're already guilty of murder in your heart. You see how Jesus expanded that? You see, I'm looking at the Old Testament law and I'm thinking, if somebody takes the physical life of another person, I'm not talking about war or self-defense, but I'm talking about if they take the life of another person, then that's murder. But Jesus says, yeah, that's true, but it's more than that. I'm going to expand this law to show you that beneath the physical taking on another person's life, there is the foundational anger that is also making you guilty of murder. He expanded the law. Then there's adultery, verse 27. Here's the antithetical statement. You have heard that it was said. Again, this is from Moses. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, one of the Ten Commandments. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Can I make a statement right here? Can I just make a statement? Now, I don't have, I don't really have scientific proof of this, but I'm just going to make a statement right here. Every man in this building is guilty of adultery. If you're a male, 
and you're older than 14 years old, you have committed adultery. Some have committed adultery more often than the others. Some have committed adultery worse off than others. But every, every man in this room over 14 years old has committed adultery. Why? Not because you've been physically with another person other than your spouse, but because Jesus expanded that law of adultery to include lusting, and there is not a man with blood pumping through his veins over 14 years of age who's never lusted, except for Jesus. So Jesus affirmed the law, saying he came to fulfill it, not to abolish it, but then he expanded the law in murder and adultery. But third and finally, he also changed the law. This is startling. But there are three cases in this Sermon on the Mount, three of these antithetical cases. Divorce, oaths and vows and retaliation, where Jesus changes the letter of what Moses had said. So let's look at these. First of all, uh, and this is not going to be on your slide, but uh, the first two are not, but I'll tell you when you'll see the slide. Divorce, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That was the law. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, man, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't understand that. I'm not smart enough to understand that, but I'm smart enough to know this. You look at what Moses said in the Old Testament, and you look at what Jesus said right here. He changed what was said. Oaths and vows, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Again, he's he's about to quote the law. Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. You see, the Old Testament law allowed for oaths, but you had, to, you had to fulfill them. Jesus says, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, by the earth, it's his footstool, by Jerusalem, it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. This was before L'Oreal. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this, Jesus said, comes from the evil one. He changed the law. And then there is retaliation, which you do have on the slide, which was from the passage I read. He says, you heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. This is, this is uh, uh, he's referring to a law that was literally called the uh, lex talioni, which means the law of retaliation. Now, there was a reason that God inspired Moses to give this law. And, and, and the reason for it was to keep people from, from retaliating in a greater way than they had been offended to begin with. For instance, some people, if, if, if you had a man over here and he stole a man's uh, donkey, let's say, 
in retaliation, this man would come over here and kill this man. Well, obviously, stealing a donkey, although it is bad, is not as bad as taking somebody's life. So the retaliation exceeded the original crime. And so the law of retaliation that God gave Moses was meant to even out the retaliation. Eye for eye and not more than an eye. Tooth for tooth. And if they take your tooth, don't take more than a tooth from them. It was set up to even out the score. But however you look at it, Jesus changed it. You've heard it said eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Boy, the Sermon on the Mount's tough. It's tough. I'm not saying that we're good at doing it. In fact, we're terrible at doing it. You're looking at somebody who's the worst at fulfilling the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus not only affirmed the law and expanded the law, but he changed the law. There's a story, a conversation between Huckleberry Finn and and his friend Buck. And Huckleberry Finn says, what's a feud, Buck? And Buck says, why, where you was raised, where was you raised, Huck? Don't you know what a feud is? Well, I never heard of it before. Tell me about it. Well, says Buck, a feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man and he kills him. And then that other man's brother kills him. And then the other brothers on both sides, they go for one another. And then the cousins chip in and by and by, everybody's killed off and there ain't no more feud. But it's kind of slow and takes a long time. That is precisely what the original law was meant to prevent. Abraham Lincoln was once criticized by an associate for his attitude toward his political enemies. And throughout his political career, he had a lot of them. They usually beat him because he lost more elections than he won. But the associate asked Lincoln this. He says, why do you always make friends of your enemies? You ought to destroy them. And Lincoln replied this way. He says, am I not destroying my enemies when I make them my friends? That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, what are we to make of this way that Jesus dealt with the law? Affirming it, but yet sometimes expanding it, and in some cases, a few cases, outright changing it. What are we to make of that? I believe that what we are to make of, uh, of all of that is simply this. When you and I are looking at the Old Testament law, and when you and I are looking at anything in the Old Testament, or the New Testament for that matter, at all, and we're trying to understand it, hear this, hear this very carefully. The proper way to understand, especially the Old Testament, is through the filter of Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His ministry, His resurrection. Jesus, according to Matthew, was the new interpreter of the law. He was the new Moses. He was the one who had the authority to take it, expand it, affirm it, change it, whatever he wanted to do with it. He had the authority to do that. And while we might not understand why he would want to make any adjustments to it at all, the fact of the matter is he did. And therefore, anytime we look at any part of Scripture, we must understand it through the lens of Jesus, and if we don't do that, we will miss grace entirely. Because it is through looking at the Old Testament, and for this matter, all of life. Listen, when you look at 
the Bible or you look at any part of life, look at all of life through the perspective of Jesus Christ. He is the criterion through whom we must interpret not only the Bible, but all of life as a whole. Jesus affirmed the law. He expanded the law. And he changed the law. And he's the key to a proper and clear vision of everything about life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there will always be more about life, always be more about Scripture, and there will always certainly be more about you that we don't know and don't understand than what we do know and understand. But Lord, I can't see how we ever will make a mistake if we try our utmost and are aided by your power to look at life, to look at scripture, to look at everything, to look at people through the lens of Jesus Christ. You are the living word. You are the object of our worship. You alone. And I pray that you'd help us to put on those Jesus glasses before we make any decision in life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.